This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Feast We here at the Word of the Week love Christmas. Well, some of us love Christmas. We're willing to bet one of us actually plays the Christmas carol backwards every year so that it has a happy ending. And it isn't the former accountant. Bah humbug. Anyway, we who write the scripts here at the Word of the Week can definitively say that we love Christmas. And as such, we first want to warn you that we will be taking a week off for Christmas. In the spirit of the holiday, on December 26th, when you open your podcast app, you're going to find we've left you a bright, shiny nothing. Merry Christmas. And if you don't celebrate Christmas, at least we didn't cheat you out of a Christmas gift. Either way, we will see you in the new year. And now to start for real. We here at the Word of the Week love Christmas. Music. At least we love Christmas music now that technology allows us to do all of our Christmas shopping at home with a nice cup of cocoa and listen to only the music we like in small, manageable chunks rather than listen to the same horrendous cover of Winter Wonderland by Carly Rae, Jasper, Cyrus, or the M&Ms, or whoever it is you kids listen to these days. And we like our Christmas music traditional. You know, the sort of stuff that doesn't sound festive at all, and is sung by dour choirs, and includes strange old words and phrases like wassail and in excelsis deo and foom, foom, foom. And our absolute favorite of them all is Good King Wenceslas. We love that song, and it has an excellent story. Or it would, if anyone ever got beyond the first verse. Seriously, people, if you're going to sing the song, Finish it. Don't stop where the king gets curious about who that guy is trudging through the snow, and his page says, that's just some guy, you know, who lives at St. Agnes Fountain. Believe it or not, the next verse is not about the king saying, oh, I see, and after an awkward pause, returning to his meal. Why do we bring this up? Well, we bring it up for a couple of reasons. Apart from the fact that Christmas is a week away and we have to do some sort of Christmas episode, and we absolutely love that song... First of all, we bring it up because, although the carol's lyrics were written properly in 1853 by an English hymn writer named John Mason Nail, it actually tells a story about a legendary king with divine powers who lived between 907 and 935 CE and is therefore basically the story of a D&D cleric turned ruler. Second of all, we bring it up because of the Feast of Stephen and how important the concept of feasts were in the Middle Ages. But let's talk about good King Wenceslas first. Or to give him his proper name, St. Zvadi Vasilov I, the Duke of Bohemia. Yes, seriously, that's his actual name. He was known as Vasilov the Good. And if you noticed that his life seemed to be a little short when we gave those dates in the paragraph before, that's because he had the bad luck to have a younger brother named Boleslav the Cruel. And those names just sort of prove that A, parents do play favorites, and B, parents are extremely short-sighted when naming their children. Bohemia was a duchy, that is, it was a state ruled by a duke. 
Back in the 9th century BCE, the Premislid family ruled the city of Prague and the surrounding regions, an area that had been settled by a tribe of Slavs known as the Czech. And that's why, if you're looking for Bohemia on a modern map, you'll actually be looking for the Czech Republic. Gradually, the family expanded its holdings until it ruled the entirety of a valley known as the Bohemian Basin. And Bohemia and Prague had two significant advantages at the time. First, the terrain around the Bohemian Basin protected it from the expanding Frankish Kingdom. And second, vital trade routes that connected Europe with Asia Minor and the Middle East ran through Prague. And thus, it was a center of trade and commerce. Consequently, the city was extremely wealthy. Centuries later, the Primsil dynasty would rule the kingdom Bohemia, Moravia, most of Poland, and even portions of Hungary. But, during the time period we're talking about, they had the Duchy of Bohemia. By the way, if you're curious about whether the word Bohemian has anything to do with the name of this particular duchy and eventual kingdom, we can tell you yes. Absolutely. The word, as a descriptor, was coined in the mid-1800s. At the time, it didn't simply refer to a starving artist living a carefree existence while struggling with AIDS and drug addiction and singing about how terrible it was for artists to sell out just to pay their rent while ironically selling out every seat in a Broadway theater. Sorry. At the time, the word didn't just refer to a carefree artist. It specifically referred to someone who flouted cultural norms and lived an unconventional life of free wandering. The word was a slur and it was synonymous with gypsies. And that's because in France in the 1500s, people thought that the Roma gypsies were actually pilgrims from the Slavic kingdom of Bohemia. Incidentally, if you like to play Rent, you should consider checking out the Puccini opera La Boheme, which is about a pair of starving artists who can't pay their sellout landlord, and then one of them falls in love with another struggling artist who shows up because she needs a match to light a candle and then they go to a cafe with a bunch of their friends and sing about what a good life they have, all starving and stuff, because at least they have their principles. Does that sound familiar at all? But we digress. Bohemians. Bohemia. Voslav the Good. Good King Wenceslas. Right, let's talk about the Carol first. And then talk about the real Duke. In the carol, good King Wenceslas is looking out the window after enjoying his traditional meal during the Feast of St. Stephen, which is traditionally celebrated on either December 26th or December 27th, depending on which denomination of Christianity is doing the celebrating. He spies a peasant, struggling through the bitter cold and snow to gather firewood. The king asks his page to gather up the food left from the feast and some good firewood and accompany him. They go out to find the peasant in the hopes of helping him get back home and giving him firewood and a good meal. But the winter weather grows fierce. While the king strides boldly through the snow, the page is flagging, and he begs the king to stop. So the king treads a deep path in the snow and tells the page to follow in his wake. And when the page does, he finds that the king's footsteps have imbued the ground with divine warmth. Or rather, the Holy Spirit, acting through the good king due to his charitable act, has warmed the ground so the page can continue. The message is that charitable deeds 
bless those who do them. Now, this charitable act was actually a common tradition for the day after Christmas. The Feast of St. Stephen, also known as the second day of Christmas, was and still is a popular holiday in Germany, Austria, Finland, and the Czech Republic, and migrated to the United Kingdom as well, where it became Boxing Day. Sort of. That's a complicated story for another time. Nowadays, though, in the United Kingdom, the day is mainly celebrated by the start of huge post-Christmas sales at various retail outlets known as a spree. But getting back to Voslov the Good, and we should note that the name Voslov is Germanized as Wenzel, and he was a Slav, hence Wenceslav, and gradually Wenceslas. Wenceslas was the first son of the Vratislaws of the Premelsid dynasty, and Vratislas was a Christian, but Vratislas married Drahomira, who was the daughter of a pagan tribal leader. That's important, because Wenceslas was baptized and raised Christian, and it was his paternal grandmother who did a lot of the educating, and Drahomira did not like that one bit. After Duke Vratislaus died, Wenceslaus, then 13, was too young to claim the throne. So it was the grandmother, Ludmilla, who became the regent and ruled Bohemia until he came of age. At least, that was the plan. Wenceslaus' mother, Drahomira, was jealous and arranged to have Ludmilla murdered. After Ludmilla was out of the way, Drahomira gained control of the Bohemian government, and she instantly instituted policies to persecute the Christians of Bohemia. When Vaslav came of age, he assumed control of the duchy. In order to secure his control and overthrow his mother, he secured an alliance with the German kingdom. The alliance empowered him to deal with raids from various neighbors, including the Magyars and the Franks. He also built a strong alliance with the Roman Catholic Church and, obviously, overturned the anti-Christian policies enacted by his mother. At a time of turmoil for the Bohemian kingdom, Wenceslaus was a stabilizing force. His alliance with the German kingdom and his moves to align the kingdom with the Roman Catholic Church made him quite popular among many, but not all, of his subjects. He had important religious sites constructed, and he was generally recognized as very charitable. That's why it's such a shame that he had a younger brother named Boleslav the Cruel. The thing was, Wenceslaus was popular in Bohemia, with the Christians specifically with the Christians who liked the Roman Catholic way of doing things. But there were two other strong religious sentiments in Bohemia at the time. The first was the traditional paganism of Wenceslaus' mother, and the second was those who aligned with the Eastern Orthodox view of Christianity. So Wenceslaus was not without his enemies among the nobility, and those enemies conspired with his younger brother to kill Wenceslaus. And so, on the traditional Eastern Orthodox celebration of the feasts of St. Cosmas and Damien, well, one of the three, because there are three feasts for three different sets of Saints Cosmas and Damien, one pair from Arabia, one from Mesopotamia, and one from Rome, well, on the feast of St. Cosmas and Damien, Borislav invited Wenceslaus to dine with him at his castle. And there, three nobles tackled Wenceslaus and stabbed him repeatedly. Borislav then finished off his brother with a spear. And according to one story, while all of this was going on, Borislav's wife was in another room giving birth to a son. Because the son was born while his dad and his friends were stabbing his brother during a religious feast in the next room, 
they named the kid Strekvas, or Terrible Feast. Because again, parents really don't take this kid naming thing seriously. That's why we have literally worked with people in our lives named Hermione and, no lie, Aragorn. Wenceslaus was immediately martyred and sainted following his death. An occult venerating him grew up in Bohemia and eventually appeared in England. And that leads us all the way to the 1800s in an English hymn writer writing a song about how blessedly charitable King Wenceslaus was. But we digress. After all, what really drew our attention to this story as fantasy gamers was the importance of the feast. Today we think of a feast as just a big meal, but if you're attentive, you might notice that feast and festival seem to come from the same word. And they do. They trace back to the Latin word ferie, which specifically referred to days reserved for the reverence of the gods. A feast, a festival, a ferie was in fact a religious holiday. And the word holiday is actually just a contraction of the words holy and day. A holiday is a holy day, a ferie. It all ties together, see? So the idea of a feast has nothing to do with a big meal after all, right? Well, wrong. Because if you go back further than the Romans, you'll find festival-like celebrations have been around for a long, long time. In fact, they go back to Stone Age hunters. After a successful hunt, it was traditional to gather the family or tribe and enjoy the food. So the first holidays or festivals or feasts were just the after-hunt celebrations of the fact that you weren't going to starve for a while. So how do you go from yay we killed a mammoth to okay let's celebrate one-third of a pair of ancient religious personages by having a huge meal with our brother and then stabbing our brother to death for afters? Well, there's two things to remember about food. First of all, when food appears, it means you won't die of starvation. And generally, people get grateful about not dying. So gradually, various ceremonies appeared in which the people who were happy about not dying paid thanks to their hunters, their leaders, and whatever spirits and supernatural entities they thought had a hand in things. Second of all, when food is plentiful, people don't have to focus so much of their attention on survival. They can afford to waste some time on extravagance. They can develop things like music and art and culture. Nothing shows this better than the sudden cultural explosion that followed the development of agriculture. And with a shift to reliance on agriculture, the after-hunt feast became the harvest feast. And thus began the connection between the reverence for heroes and leaders and spirits and gods and extravagance and luxury and food. There you go. Feast. Festival. Holiday. Now, no society is more famous for their great extravagant feasts and parties than the Romans. In fact, it was their calendar that codified the idea of Furie, feasts for the gods in the Western world. And they had a hell of a lot of feasts, and their rulers especially loved to one-up each other with their extravagant feasts. In the first century CE, Emperor Vitellus assembled what was, at the time, the most expansive and extensive spread in history. He gathered delicacies from every corner of the Roman Empire. Pike livers, peacock brains, flamingo tongues, lamprey eel spleens, all the best stuff. 
and he piled it all up on a gigantic platter that he called the Shield of Minerva. Minerva was the goddess of wisdom and war, and the Roman equivalent of Athena, by the way. Two centuries later, the inveterate, and often cruel, prankster Heliogabolus mixed bits of gold and amethysts and rubies and pearls with the mixed vegetables at one feast. Guests were compensated for their broken teeth by being allowed to keep the jewels they found. At another of his great feasts, guests had to be rescued from near suffocation when he buried the entire spread in perfumed roses and other flowers dropped from above. And the tradition of extravagance continued in the Middle Ages. Kings and lords loved to embellish their feasts with elaborate entertainments. These were called subtleties. The simplest subtleties included troubadours and bards providing entertainment during the meal, or jesters and fools. Conjurers might perform tricks. Fireworks and pyrotechnics displays featured once those things had been invented. But more elaborate subtleties, and there's an oxymoron for you, became common as time went on. For some reason, in the mid-1400s, giant pies with surprises inside became all the rage. When the pie was cut, live birds or frogs or snakes might emerge to delight the feast-goers. If delight is the right word for that. Or a jester might burst from a custard pie. In 1484, the Duke of Burgundy presented an enormous pie that contained a troop of musicians. So... If you're curious where the tradition of strippers jumping out of cakes started, it started around 1400. Bet you didn't know that one. But these feasts weren't just for rich people to scare the pantaloons off their rich friends with live snakes jumping out of pies or to break their teeth with gemstones. In the Middle Ages, feasts became a vital part of life for the feudal peasantry. See, the life of a feudal peasant was as monotonous as it was difficult, and feasts helped ease the monotony. In point of fact, thanks to the celebration of various feasts, the idea that a feudal peasant's life was nothing but endless work is actually not true. It has been estimated that peasants during the medieval period may have enjoyed up to eight full weeks out of every year off from work due to the number of feasts and holidays. While many began as pagan celebrations, which were all tied to various key moments in the year, which, in turn, had their origins in agricultural and hunting activities, most gradually transformed into days to venerate particular religious figures, especially saints, or to commemorate religious events. In February was the Feast of St. Valentine. In March, you had the various holy days surrounding Easter. In April, there was All Fool's Day. In May, there was May Day. In June, peasants celebrated Midsummer Eve and various festivals commemorating local heroes and patron saints. These festivals were all lumped together as feasts of fire, because after reenacting heroic stories, the peasants would often pile up bones to burn in reverence, which is where the tradition of celebrating summer holidays with bonfires, or bonefires as they were called, came from. In July, you might celebrate St. Swithin's Day. In August, there was the Loaf Mass, or Lamas Day, which celebrated the first wheat harvest of the year. September featured the Feast of St. Michael. In October was the Feast of St. Crispin and also All Hallows' Eve, which was followed, in November, by All Saints' Day. November, which was known as Blood Month because it was when fresh meat was generally smoked, salted, cured, and dried for storage and consumption throughout the winter, 
November also featured St. Martin's Feast. And these are just a sampler. Because different locations across Europe also had a grab bag of local feasts and festivals to celebrate. And of course, we left out the big one, December and January, because it was during the dreariest and hardest time of the year that the biggest and best of all festivals was needed to raise the spirits. The celebration began with Christmas, of course, or rather the first day of Christmas, and it ended 12 days later on the aptly named 12th day, January the 6th, which is commonly referred to these days as Little Christmas, and in some Christian traditions commemorates the arrival of the three Magi at the crib side of the newborn Savior Jesus. These 12 days also encompassed the night of first gifts, which was also the celebration of the new year and involved giving gifts. Plow Monday also fell during this time. On Plow Monday, the village's land would be broken for the first time in the new year, and the farmers would have plow races. Meanwhile, the children of the village might play fool plow. They'd drag a plow from house to house and ask for pennies. If the owner gave them a penny, they'd go away. If not, they'd plow up the ground in front of the house's door. During the 12-day celebration of Christmas, it was customary for the local lord to reward his peasants for their work for the year, as well as his servants. He'd present peasants and servants with gifts of food, drink, and clothing. He might also give firewood, including large logs that would be burned throughout the Christmas celebration. And that sets the precedent of a kindly king braving the winter cold to present a peasant with food and firewood on the day after Christmas. And. As we get back to where all this started, we now realize we've explained not one Christmas song, but two. Because now you know why there are 12 days of Christmas. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com.